0: are visiting with us we're certainly encouraged and a blessed to have you with us this morning and we often um, have visitors and so we are thankful for you and we encourage you to be back as often as you're able. We're also blessed and encouraged to have our members here, those who are not traveling, those who are not sick. it's a blessing to be here this morning certainly to praise God together and worship God together. If you'll pull out your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 this will be one of our main texts. ...from which we will be studying this morning. So if you want to mark Ephesians 2, we will be back and forth here in this passage. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, I want to begin in verse 1 of this chapter... ...to get the context of what we want to focus on this morning. I did under, uh, realize we've be getting to this concept in Titus chapter 2. It also fits perfectly with Daryl's prayer. It's a wonderful concept and a wonderful teaching from God's uh, holy doctrine. I want to look at it this morning. In Ephesians 2 and verse 1, he begins by saying, "In you..." I've mentioned many times, it's important to recognize immediately the pronouns so that we can know who's being talked about here. The you here is the Gentiles. You can back up to Ephesians chapter 1 to find that out. So you Gentiles, hath he, the he there is Christ, when you back up to the end of chapter 1, he, quickened. Quickened means to be made alive. So you Gentiles, Christ has made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. That is, those Gentiles, as a people, were dead in their sins and yet Christ has made them alive, those Gentiles who were Christians at Ephesus. In verse 2, he says, Wherein, in time past, ye, you Gentiles, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That power of the air is the power of the air down here. There's two different airs. This one's particularly the one on earth. So you have here the prince of this world. We know that reference to, to be the devil in Scripture. So he describes here the fact that they, Gentiles, in times past, in their times past have lived and walked in such a way that was according to what the devil's will was, according to what the world would have them to walk. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He now brings up a different class of people. Those are children, uh, referring here to the Jewish people. But in this context, those Jewish people who were then, at that time, the time at which he was writing this, because he says now, these Jewish people who were rejecting Christ, the Messiah, and rejecting repentance, are those children now of a disobedience who are walking the exact same way that the Gentiles used to, to walk. So you get down to verse 3 and he says, Among whom, that is, they walk that way among the Gentiles, among whom also we the Jews all had our conversation in times past. He said in verse 2 that they're walking this way now, but he says there's also Jews have proven amongst the Gentiles they walked that way in the past as well. In times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature, that nature is continual practice, that is, they were simply walking the way they had always walked. It was this perpetual walking that he describes here, this perpetual disobedience that they had, walked, they had continued to walk the way they had always walked. By nature, the children of wrath, even as others. So in this context, he is contrasting and actually comparing the Jews and the Gentiles And he has been, of course, since Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to go with me to verse 4, and I want you to note that next phrase in verse 4. But God. Paul has laid out the problem. The problem is the Jews and the Gentiles in times past has walked the exact same way in worldliness and in sin. So so at this point, upon that recognition, Paul says in verse 4, God had to step in at this point. God had to take these things in his own hands. Jew and Gentile found themselves in sin, and so but God had to do something. But God had not done something, they would be still in the same situation, Jew and Gentile. They would be lost in their sins, but God had to step in and do something. That's what he begins with in verse 4. In verse 4, you have being laid out, beginning God's part. God's part in this situation. God's part. God had to enter into this situation. Go down with me to verse 7. Look in verse 7, I'll note, we'll want to note what he sums this up as. The word that is used to sum up God's part in this situation. He says in verse 7 that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. The grace of God is the summation of God's part. It is described here as exceedingly, abundantly. God's part was exceeding. Grace, as you know, charis is a gift. We talked about it in Bible class this morning. It is God giving something. We've talked about before how mercy is not doing something that is deserved. Grace is doing something or giving something that is not deserved. And at the root of both of those is, grace is doing something. It is doing something. So when we reference the grace of God, we're talking about something that God did. Something that God worked. In the situation that man found themselves in, Jew and Gentile, God had to do something. He had to step in and and work something. That, in his summary, is in fact the grace of God. In fact, go with me to verse 8. For by grace are ye saved. In particular, when it comes to the area of salvation. Salvation from the sins he's been talking about in 1 through 4. God had to step in and work. God had the solution and had to step in and work to solve the problem of man's sin. And that is called grace in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, and it pertains to our salvation from sin. God had to step in. It's God's part. The grace of God, it's God's part in our salvation. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. I want you to mark here, but go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is the other context where we will find ourselves in a lot this morning. But I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Had God, but God, not stepped in and worked man would still find himself in the situation of not being saved, lost in sin, dead to sin. But God worked. He did something. It's called His grace. And that pertains to our salvation. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1, and we'll we'll, uh, truly detail this context further in a moment. But I want you to note what Paul says in verse 1. We then, we'll get to the we also, but the we then is the ambassadors, the ministers. As workers together with Him. Together with whom? Together with God. Now verse 1 reveals that yes, the ambassadors and the ministers did work. But what it reveals in verse 1 is God did work. God worked. He says we are workers together with God. And in particular with God in the area of man's salvation. God did work. That is called the grace of God. God stepped in and did something to help us with our sin problem. Our death problem. And that is God working. We are working with God. In the area of salvation, we're going to see it's the area of salvation in verse 2. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time except in the day of salvation. God worked with these ambassadors in the day of salvation. This is called the grace of God. God's part, his grace. God giving something that was not deserved. I want you to go with me to Isaiah 49. I want you to note what he is quoting from. This is um, Paul here in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2 is quoting from Isaiah. And I want you to note in the context of Isaiah what's being described also. Isaiah 49. And let's back up in Isaiah 49 to verse 1. Isaiah 49 beginning in verse 1. Because it's very interesting this context as well. Isaiah being comparable or even with an ambassador in the Old Testament... We're going to see the, 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 the description in this context. In verse 1, Listen, O Isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me. So now I know the me here, the first person, is Isaiah. He hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother. He hath made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. This is Isaiah's job as a prophet. His mouth is like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft, and his quiver hath he hidden me. God was going to use Isaiah as his weapon from the quiver where you have arrows. And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, and so Isaiah responds, I have labored in vain. The description is for is what Isaiah has worked. And Isaiah looks at the work that he did as a prophet. And the conclusion he has reached is the work I did as a prophet was labor that was in vain. He did not find people repenting. He did not find Israel changing. And so he looks at his own work, his own labor, and says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength, Isaiah's strength. I have spent for naught, for nothing. There has been no fruit from the strength that he used and the labor that he did, he said, is in vain. Yet surely, in verse 4, my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my, with my God. So I want you to note in verses 1-4, through 4, Isaiah is describing his own work. His work. That's the context. I've done my work. I've done the labor I've been sent to do. And he says it's vain. It hasn't accomplished anything. That's what Isaiah is afraid of. We'll see what God's answer is in a moment. But I want you to go down to verse 8 in this context now. Go, look, go down to verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I, the I is not Isaiah, the I is the Lord Jehovah. So God says, when it came to salvation, in the day that you needed help, it says, don't worry, Isaiah, I helped. God stepped in and helped, but God did something that was necessary for mankind. In a day of salvation, have I helped thee. The New Testament said, succor thee, and I will preserve thee. And give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth to cause to inherit the desolate heritage. You see the context here that Paul is quoting from is a context wherein Isaiah is examining his own labors and his own works. And God is pointing out, don't worry Isaiah, I'm working. We are working together in this. And the thing they're working together in is man's salvation. In this context and in the 2 Corinthians context, they're working together in man's salvation. God's part is in fact His grace. So I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians, go back to 2 Corinthians, and I want to examine this morning the work of God in man's salvation. The work of God in man's salvation, which as a summary can be described as His grace. He is doing something that was not deserved, but this is God's part. That's a very important to understand. We're dealing with God's part. And I want you to note, first of all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the work of God that started it all. The work of God that started the whole process is found in verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, compels us. I will get to in a moment the fact that we should be compelled to do something as well. But I want you to note in verse 14, the thing that started the whole process was God's love. God's love started this whole process. It would never have been started if he did not love us. If he looked down upon us in sin and did not have love for us, not one part of this process would have begun. But because of his love, but God for his love started this process of man's salvation, of extending grace to man. It is his love that com- it is a compelling love. In fact, that's why the Apostle John would say in 1 John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us. It is a compelling love. A love of God that should compel us to love in return. A compelling, a constraining love. And it began the whole process. I want you to go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul notes the same thing to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2. And go with me to verse 4 and continue with me in verse 4. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us what started this whole process what began this whole process of man's salvation god's love for us had he not loved us not a step of this process would have continued any further jesus would not come to earth he would not have died he would not have hung on the cross he would not been buried he would not been raised again he would not extended and showed us salvation if god didn't love us it all begins with his love according to scripture and in fact if you go to deuteronomy chapter 7 that has always been the case this is not a New Testament concept. If God has saved anyone, it has always begun with his love. That's always st- what starts God's salvation of mankind is his love for mankind. Go to me Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's been true since the very beginning, even in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, I want you to go with me uh, down to verse 7. Deuteronomy 7, and begin, begin with me in verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, that is the Jews, those who are of Israel, the Lord did not set his love upon Israel nor choose you because you were more in number than any people for you were the fewest of all people. He didn't do he didn't set out to save them and in particular save them from Egypt to begin with and make them his people because of something that they did. God's love started this process. Because of his love and he says it in verse 8, but because the Lord loved you. There it is again. But the Lord What started the whole process of saving Israel? God's love started the process. God's love started the process wherein He's going to save mankind. But because the Lord loved you and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers because of His faithfulness, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. That was God's process of redemption. What started it? His love for us started it. That has always been true. It is not just true. The New Testament is also true the Old. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and because of love, because of God's love for mankind, God now has to start the, is going to start the reconciliation process. Reconciliation process is man, when he sins, he is separated from God, and God, but for God's love, he now is going to set out a process through which man can come back to God, be reconciled to God. It's called reconciliation, a return to God. And but for God's love, we would not be able to do it. I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians 5, and now go with me to verse 19. So now God began his work in reconciling. These are God's works in man's salvation. His first one is love. His second one is now he begins the reconciliation process. This is God doing something. This is God working. This is God's grace. It's man's part in our salvation. He says in verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God, because of his love, has now started the reconciliation process through which anyone who does exactly what he says to do can be reconciled unto him. Now I want you to note there that God was doing it in Christ. The question we might ask is, when did this reconciliation plan when did God's plan to reconcile all mankind begin? Did it only begin after Christ came to earth, or has it always been there? Man, God's plan to reconcile and save man. Go me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And look with me in verse 18. 1 Peter 1 and verse 18. 1 Peter 1 and verse 18. 1 1 and verse 18 God's working in Reconciliation. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things. Remember, the redemption of mankind begins with God's love and then God has to work. Therefore, silver and gold cannot accomplish it. Man's work cannot accomplish it. It took but God to do something. You are not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by traditions from your fathers. There's that natural, that, that things that they did by practice. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Of course, we will get back to this. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Did his, God's plan of reconciliation begin when Christ t- came? Or was it in God's plan from the foundation of the world? Peter says, from the foundation of the world. John will, of course, verify that. Revelation 13 and verse 8. From the foundation of the world, the lamb has been slain. That is God's part. It is God's grace. God loved us so much, he then began the reconciliation plan through which Jesus Christ, from the foundation of the world, was going to be God's plan through which man could be reconciled unto God again. I want you to go back to me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So without God working this plan and beginning this plan on reconciliation, of course, we can never have been reconciled, never been saved, never come back to God. In 2 Corinthians 5, go with me to verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given to us the the ministry of reconciliation. This is by God's love. God set out this plan through which man can be reconciled He's going to use Jesus Christ to accomplish this. This is the means through which he's going to reconcile man to a man to God again. This is all God's grace. God working every step of this plan is God's grace. It's just God doing something that we have not earned. It is God doing something we do not deserve. This is just God's grace, God's part. And it began with him. But God, we cannot be saved. I want you to go with me to verse 19 now. This, of course, involved the forgiveness of our sins. In order to be reconciled back to God, we have to, that God had to fix the problem that separated us from God to begin with. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, that's sin. Sin was what separated us. Sin was the problem. So God had to fix the sin problem. Verse 19 says again, To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Forgiveness. Look at verse 21. For he hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. God had to set out to fix the sin problem. This is God's grace. Had he not fixed the sin problem, we could not be saved. We could not be reconciled or redeemed. This is God's part in man's redemption. And he had to fix the sin problem. Go me to Romans chapter 5. What's remarkable about God fixing the sin problem, go with me to Romans chapter 5. Paul's going to bring this up in verse 8. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Romans 5, verse 8. I want you to note how similar this is to the process we've already seen. But God commendeth to, that is, to exhibit, and in fact, exhibit by comparison, because his whole point is God is exhibiting a higher love than man can ever imagine to exhibit. That's how great of his love is. Love started the whole process. God committed His love toward us. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What kind of love did God have for mankind? God had love for those who were in sin. He had to fix the sin problem. His love is going to initiate this. It says in verse 9, Much more than being now justified by His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Who worked this? God did. What initiated it? God's love started this process. Why did he do it? Because he loved us. How did he do it? Through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his son. That's how he did it. By the blood of Christ, by his death, and by his resurrection. In fact, if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is going to note this as well. 2 Corinthians 5, go with me to verse 14. To fix the sin problem, he had to send his son. And his son had to do exactly what the father told him to do to fix the sin problem, and this is all God's grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, begin with me in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, and verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, compels us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead in sins. If he had to die for everyone, that means everyone was dead in their sins. He says in verse 15, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. That was God's solution to man's sin problem. And I'm telling you, if we only had that as God's gift, that is beyond comprehension for us. That portion of God's grace, that portion of God's gift, to send his only begotten Son to come in the form of flesh to come in the form of a servant, to taste of death, to be buried, humiliated, mocked, to taste of death, be buried, and to rise again. That in of itself is a gift we can never even begin to measure, comparable to anything that we have ever done. This is God's gift. He was accomplishing our sin problem. He was fixing our sin problem by sending His Son. By the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that by itself is amazing, but that's not where He stopped. Go back to me to verse 19. So through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, man's death problem had a, a sin problem, had a solution, and, and thus could be reconciled to God. He then revealed it and protected this message. Not only did he accomplish all this, he then revealed what had been done and protected the message that, wherein that revelation was. It says in 2, Peter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us that word of reconciliation. Not only did God, by His grace, reconcile man and make it possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, He also revealed that. And now they can go around and we can go around and preach that very word through which man can be reconciled. By God's grace. But for God we would not even know about these things. There's not a person in this room that witnessed the death, the burial, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not a person in this room. It is only by the grace of God, wherein we have the very word of reconciliation that we can know about these things to begin with. Thanks be to God. This is God's grace. The very fact that we can pick this up and read it this morning is God's grace. God's part. We have the word of reconciliation, and that's God's part. So he further revealed that, and 2 Corinthians 5 describes that fact. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Go back to Ephesians 2. And Paul is going to reveal this also to the church at Ephesus in that same context. Ephesians chapter 2. Go with me to verse 16. Ephesians 2, beginning verse 16. And that he might reconcile both unto God, both Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross, in the church by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, the enmity not only between man and God, but the enmity between Jew and Gentile was all taken care of. And God's plan, God's grace through the cross into his body, the church. And then it says, verse 17, we came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh, Jew and Gentile. Not only did God accomplish this, he says, then that message was preached. That message was recorded. That message was written down. It was preached and written down, and we have that word of reconciliation. That is the grace of God. To doubt the fact that we even have the message of God is to doubt God's grace and God's power. Why would he go through this whole scheme whereby man can be saved and then not even allow us to have access to what we need to do about it? or even to learn about it. I can't go up to a tree and ask, did Jesus Christ, the Son of God, die on you? I can't find that out from a tree. I have to send His word of reconciliation through which we can find out about it. That is God's grace, God's gift to mankind. And further, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and sometimes maybe we forget about this, but God Himself selected ambassadors to proclaim that word. God Himself selected the ambassadors and the ministers through which that word would be proclaimed. That is important to God's grace, by the way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go with me down to verse 19 again. Verse 19, To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and it hath committed unto us. I have to know who the us is. He's about to identify who the us is. The word of reconciliation. Now then we, that's the us, are ambassadors. So the us is the ambassadors for Christ. The word of reconciliation was committed to ambassadors, representatives of God on earth, was committed unto them, as though God did beseech you by us. The you is the recipients of this letter. Therefore, he is putting them in a different category than the us and the we, because the us and the we are the ambassadors. And I want you to note what job the ambassador was. The ambassadors were given the word of reconciliation, and then they let us. The us, that is, the, 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 for example, those at Corinth know about it. He says, God did beseech you by us, the ambassadors. Now, I want you to, and again, sometimes we overlook this, but I want you to understand how important the function was of the ambassadors, those who were selected by God to proclaim this message. I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 2 again. Actually, go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Go with me to verse 19. Ephesians 6 and verse 19. And for me, that utterance, Logos, may be given unto me, that's Paul, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery, the gospel, something that had been directly given. This is also God's grace unto Paul, an ambassador, and he's going to say this in verse 20, for I for the which I, Paul, am an ambassador in bonds because he was in prison at that moment. So I want you to note what Paul has just identified. A mystery has been revealed to me. I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and I have made that known unto you. And I want you to consider how much of God's grace was even involved in who was selected as the ambassadors. I am thankful to God. You know, when I read through the book of Acts, I am just more and more impressed by the, the life of the man Paul. But aren't you thankful to God? Isn't it magnificent that God selected a man like Paul? And God selected a man like John? And God selected a man like Peter? Isn't it wonderful that he selected men like that, men like John the baptizer, to be proclaimers, representative of God on earth? Isn't it wonderful that he selected men like that and not a bunch of weaklings? If he, can you imagine if he had selected a bunch of weaklings? a bunch of people who, who, who could be tossed to and fro, a bunch of people who the, the first sign of any kind of, uh, of with, withstanding them, they would give up. Could you imagine if those had been the ambassadors God have, had selected to proclaim this ministry of reconciliation? That is God's grace. Even the very people he selected was God's grace. In fact, Jesus uh, spoke of this. Go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 14. Jesus spoke about how important the ambassadors are. To the, the plan of God in saving mankind. Go me to Luke chapter 14 and go with me to verse 28. Luke 14 and verse 28. Luke 14 and verse 28. In this very context where he is, he is describing how important it is to truly think about what you need to do and what all is entailed to being a disciple before you become a disciple. Verse 28, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and count the cost, whether he has sufficient, to finish it, to finish the work that he's been called to do. If you have a group of people who who truly think about what they're doing before they start out on it, and they have sufficiently considered the cost, and they finish the work, that is a magnificent thing. In verse 29, Less happily after he hath laid the foundation. And not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. Can you imagine if Jesus Christ, who is the foundation, had a bunch of ambassadors who were weaklings? Those who were in charge of laying the foundation. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 11. Like Paul, Paul says, I'm a master builder. I have laid the foundation. You can't lay another foundation in 1 Corinthians 3, and verse 11. But the, the master builder, someone like Paul, who was selected, because if you did not have men like Paul and John and Peter and Jude and James, if you did not have men like that and Barnabas and Silas, then he says this thing, having been laid, would have fallen apart and people would have mocked it. I know this is the case because in Acts chapter 5, he gives two examples amongst these Jewish, the, the, the Jewish um, um, leaders here, wherein he says there are two examples. This man rose up, people followed him, they died, and it came to nothing. Another man rose up, they followed him, he died, it came to nothing. It will be mocked if it comes to nothing. You need strong ambassadors. That is the grace of God. He selected men who are strong men, strong in the faith, able to proclaim the word of reconciliation that we might have it still to this day. So go back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. When he begins in chapter 6 by saying we, that we is the ambassadors, the ministers. We then as workers together with God. It is God's grace wherein the ambassadors that God chose were the ambassadors that God chose. And they worked together with God to accomplish God's plan. And I want you to understand this morning, when you get into doctrines, I've mentioned before the thing that I hate the most, The most about Calvinism that to me is the grossest, most unthankful, most ungrateful tenet of Calvinism is total depravity. Not only because the other four completely stand and fall based on that. If you take out total depravity, the other four tenets completely fall. But because of this reason, what total depravity is saying is, God, I know you've already done all these things to make it possible for me to be saved. I know that you loved me. I know that you set out this plan of reconciliation that ultimately included the sending of your only begotten Son to be treated miserably by mankind over whom he was the master, to be treated like that, mocked and crucified on a cross, on a cruel cross, to be raised again and returned unto the Father. And you have sent this word, and we can know about it, It would mean nothing if Christ did all that and we can't know about it but by God's grace we can now know about it we have the word of reconciliation revealed and continued up until this day and the person says God I know you've done all these great things for me now I demand and expect that you do more for me in my salvation that's why it's so gross that is just gross to me that that person then having seen and observed all that God has already done they say God Now I need you to take your Holy Spirit, come upon me irresistibly, force me to do what you want me to do, to be saved, and if that doesn't happen, God, it's because you didn't force me to. That is gross to me. And it is so unthankful and ungrateful to not acknowledge all that God has already done, and that at the end of it all say, God, you still need to do more for my salvation, and I'm not going to do a single thing. That's gross and unthankful. I hate that tenor of that doctrine because it leaves people in this position of, God, you owe me more. What an ungrateful way to think in this life. I want you to go with me back to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. I think Isaiah 49 is a great passage in Scripture to remind us of man's part, the importance of man's part. We have been seeing this morning the working of God, and truly, but for God having worked, Nothing would be possible. We could not be saved. We could not be reconciled, but it were for God's part and his love for us. But I want you to note, remember in Isaiah 49 in verses 1 through 4, he is again describing his own works. Verse 4, Isaiah says, Then I said, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. And so Isaiah in examining his own works and own labor says it's nothing. There's no purpose in it. Now please remember. God who called Isaiah from the womb is the one who gave Isaiah that work. Don't forget that in this context because God has a response to this. In verse, I want you to continue that context in verse 5. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he says, that is God has said to Isaiah. It is a light thing. You should think of this in an interrogative sense. God is asking a rhetorical question. Is it a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel? I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayst be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Isaiah, do you think that's a small task? Is that a small thing? What I have called you to do, Isaiah, do you consider that a light thing, a small thing? God says it's a huge thing because it pertains to the salvation I'm revealing unto man. And so what I want to remind us of in this context is, God reminds Isaiah man's part is also critical and crucial. Man's part could not have done it on its own, but it is also crucial. God said it's not a small thing when you obey what I have told you to do. Because man's part is also a part of this salvation process. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And this is a shame sometimes because people will go to Ephesians chapter 2 and in a context where God is describing His part, grace, they will reach the conclusion, this context, look, it doesn't say anything about man, therefore man has no part. Well, in a context wherein God is describing His part, of course not. Because He's describing His part. But we'll see as he continues here, he's also going to get to man's part. It is a shame, however, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that of not of yourself, it is a gift of God. God's gift is what we're talking about, God's gift of grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. They reach the conclusion that means that God, that man does not do anything. We talked about this in Bible class this morning. They have reached the conclusion that because of God's grace, and this is a gift, therefore man doesn't have to do anything. That's his response. That's many people's response. And again, I think it is unthankful, ungrateful and gross to reach a conclusion that man has no responsibility once having observed and been compelled by God's love, compelled to do what? What does God's love compel me to? To sit back and do nothing? Is that what God's love compels me to? Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to address this, but it's not in fact compels you to do nothing. Go me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, Dink brought up, for example, baptism this morning. People, when, When someone goes and preaches the word of reconciliation, which includes baptism, and someone hears the fact that baptism is included within the word of reconciliation, they'll reach the conclusion that, but baptism is a work of man. Therefore, it cannot be involved in man's salvation. There are two problems with that. The first problem is the fact you have miscategorized baptism. In Colossians two and verse twelve, Colossians two verse twelve, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith—that's man part—we just saw it earlier through the faith of the operation or working of God, who hath raised him from the dead. The first problem you have there is it is not a work of man, because it involves forgiveness of sins. I can't forgive my own sins. The person lowering me down the water cannot forgive my sins. It's not a work of man. It is an operation or work of God. That is still God's grace. You understand that my faith in God working, my part is the faith in that situation. When someone is baptized, that's God working. So for you to say, oh, that's a work, therefore it's not required. Yes, it's a work of God. Are you saying God's work is not required? Of course it is. That's God's grace. God is working to forgive sins in Colossians 2 and verse 12. I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And go with me to verse 10. Not only is it a problem because you have misclassified what baptism it is. Baptism is a work of God because it involves a forgiveness of sins. We also note in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. The next problem I have, that is, in both contexts, in both contexts we're studying this morning, he continues by saying, we also have been made this to do good works. And if you remove man's responsibility, but that man is compelled to do out of love, the love, the deep love of God, then you have removed a vital part in man's salvation, and in man continuing to abide where he needs to be, because he says we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not to avoid good works, but to do good works, Ephesians 2, verse 10. Go with me to 2 Corinthians, our other context, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Go with me to verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15. Our man's works required in the scheme of God's salvation for mankind yes as a response having been compelled by God's part by God's grace we're compelled to obey him faithful obedience verse 15 says and that he died for all God's part that they they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto live unto him which died for them are you telling me i have a responsibility now to live unto Christ are there requirements for the way that i live yes There are requirements for the way that I live. I was living in sin. God reconciled me unto Him, and now I have to live differently. That is a requirement of man's part. If I don't change anything about the way I live, I am failing in my part, not God's part. That is man's part. Look at me in verse 18. Verse 18. One of the greatest parts that we have in this in verse 18. All things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. One of the greatest parts that we have is to take the word of reconciliation that the ambassadors preached and wrote down, to take that written down word of reconciliation, that word of grace, as we saw in Bible class this morning, and take that word of God's grace unto others. That is man's part. God has chosen that to be man's part. God could have chosen to, every time someone is born, or reach an accountable age, to zap the information of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ into their brains. He could have chosen that. That is not the way that God chose. He chose instead to take the gospel through vessels, through human vessels. That is our part. If you say we have no work to do and no part, then how is the gospel going to get out to the rest of mankind? How is the world going to be reconciled into God if we're not doing our part? Go with me to 2 Corinthians 6 and go with me to verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning verse 4. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, and necessities, and distresses, and stripes, and imprisonments, and tumults, and labors, and watchings, and fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. This is the description of things that the ambassadors were doing. Again, I'm thankful to God for the type of men that they were. But what he describes here is look you're going to have to put forth some effort. Do you think Christianity is an effortless religion? Do you think to live as a Christian, it requires no effort? Paul says, look, you may have to be imprisoned. You may have to receive stripes. You may have to be out in the sea. You may have to, what does he say in verse 5? In labor, in work. That is a part of Christianity. The recent conclusion that man has no works to do as a Christian is, 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 is the greatest form of ignorance the Bible describes the fact that we have work to do look in verse 9 as unknown and yet well known as dying and behold we live as chastened and not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing and yet possessing all things it's not easy it's not always going to be easy it is worth the work And it's worth the work if for no other reason because we are aware of God's work in our salvation. The work that God did in our own salvation. Two years ago yesterday, Grace Cox obeyed the gospel. I was thinking about that yesterday. uh, yesterday. Two years now, you might think, wow, it's, it's gone so fast. Two years ago, she obeyed the gospel. That was the working of God in addition to her faith. That's what we're talking about. God working through her faith in God's work. That's all we're talking about, God's reconciliation unto him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God's mercy that is not doing something that is deserved has allowed you to continue unto this very day because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and verse 23. But by God's grace, in addition to his mercy, you can also receive reconciliation unto God this very morning. All you have to do is come forward in faith and let God work. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which, by the way, in John chapter 6 is described as a work of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you repent of your sins, that is, you change your mind, God could have chosen to change it for you. But instead, He loved us. And that love compels us to understand that that sin has separated me from God. And by confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, we can take you this very hour and baptize you into Jesus Christ, the working of God, having faith in God's operation, that when you come up, your past sins are washed away. Acts 22 and verse 16. God promised it, therefore it's true. He will wash away sins. Acts 22 and verse 16. Acts 2 and verse 38. For, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Not your own working, not my working. It is God working through that. All you did was have faith in God's work. And we can take you this very hour and baptize you into Jesus Christ, being reconciled unto him into one body, the same body that those who are in Christ already are a part of this morning. If you're part of the body of Christ this morning and part of the church this morning, be thankful and mindful and remember all that God did to work so that we can have a chance of reconciliation. And those who are Christian this morning have already accessed that. Now we have to live the way that we ought to live as Christians. And maybe you've not been living the way you ought to live. Make that change. If it's something of a public nature, we are here to pray with you and pray for you. If it's something of a private nature, make it right. Make that change. Change your mind. Repentance is also for Christians, not just non-Christians. Change your mind about sin. Confess that sin before God, 1 John 1 and verse 9, and He is just. He is just and trustworthy to forgive that sin. I can put that great confidence in God. Whatever the case might be, make it known as we stand, as we sing.